The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, creatives, misfits, media and technology, so much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I mean, Disney should, I've heard you talk about this before, they should be in the catbird seat. They should be in the driver's seat. The problem for, for Disney is those guaranteed fees are going away and they've traded it out for a direct-to-consumer business, which is really a slog. It's expensive to get customers. It's expensive to keep customers. In case you missed it, back at you with another Full Disclosure Rewind featuring highlights from recent episodes, including a self-proclaimed cartographer of the, quote, media universe, The Economist magazine's Wall Street and Markets editor on China's slowdown, a little taste of my book, Hotel Scarface, on my podcast, and an honest self-appraisal of where we'd like to take this show, which turns 10 next year. Do stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ. Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry full disclosure on your air. We start with Evan Shapiro, veteran media executive and producer, professor, consultant, the self-described media universe cartographer dishes uncomfortable analysis on the disruption of Hollywood, which just reached a tipping point with cable company charters feud with Disney, the parent of ESPN. Everyone is scrambling for answers and revenue. Evan, explain this to me, because I think that Disney would be the envy of everyone. And certainly it's had this annus horribilis with ESPN and ABC is nominally for sale. Nobody really watches the Disney Channel. Turns out they paid way too much for Rupert Murdoch's Fox assets. I mean, it's not a huge comparative advantage if you could have the Simpsons on the Disney Plus thing. They're still in limbo over Hulu, of which they're going to consolidate control. It was interesting when I was at the Disney parks, Hulu was never mentioned. Hulu was like this distant... NC-17 rated stepchild. The asymmetry of this is if you take a cable company like a Comcast or a Charter, which is enormous and still has enormous legacy distribution and some content, the rents that they're paying, the still outsized but diminishing rents that they're paying to Disney, Disney then uses to funnel Hulu and Disney Plus, which kind of cut out the cable company, right? You're just using the cable company as a dumb pipe at that point. You just want a Wi-Fi, a broadband connection. Yeah, there's two parts of that equation, though. In the old model, there was the guaranteed revenue of affiliate fees coming from Charter and Comcast for ESPN, even for the 80% of consumers that never watch ESPN. So 100% of Charter and Comcast customers pay for ESPN. Truly less than a quarter use the product on a regular basis. And they're paying. That's the most expensive part of your cable package is, is ESPN, unless you pay extra for HBO. So there is that component to it. The, the other thing is, I mean, Disney should, I've heard you talk about this before, they should be in the catbird seat. They should be in the driver's seat. The problem for, for Disney is those guaranteed fees are going away and they've traded it out for a direct-to-consumer business, which is really a slog. It's expensive to get customers. It's expensive to keep customers. It's expensive to get them back after they churn out. And that's the new direct. They now have to go into a retail business where the cable business was a wholesale business. So that's mm. a completely different thing. What's fascinating, though, is that Bob Iger is the same guy who came out on stage and said, we're going to lose We're going to lose $25 billion dollars building this direct-to-consumer business and now he's shying away from finishing the job instead of cutting their way to profitability which i understand is the temptation because it looks super easy what they should be doing is going back to what made them who they are today disney was not built on walt disney's back like we don't talk about mickey mouse anymore we talk about the princesses, which is all acquired content. Pixar, Star Wars, Monday Night Football. But Pixar, Hi. Monday Night Football, uh, ES, you know, <laughs> ESPN, even ABC. These were all purchased 
products, right? Star Wars. Bob Iger didn't become successful by cutting and saving. He made these big, bold acquisitions and then turned them into massive universes, which then pay off at the parks. So instead of cutting back, imagine for a second if Disney leaned into what made them who they are today and they bought Roblox. Not instead of cutting, you added. You took your all this IP, including The Simpsons and all everything that they spent $75 billion for. Evan, explain this to me because I think that Disney would be the envy of everyone. And certainly it's had this annus horribilis with ESPN and ABC is nominally for sale. Nobody really watches the Disney Channel. Turns out they paid way too much for Rupert Murdoch's Fox assets. I mean, it's not a huge comparative advantage if you could have The Simpsons on the Disney Plus thing. They're still in limbo over Hulu, of which they're going to consolidate control. It was interesting when I was at the Disney parks, Hulu was never mentioned. Hulu was like this distant NC-17 rated stepchild. The asymmetry of this is if you take a cable company like a Comcast or a Charter, which is enormous and still has enormous legacy distribution and some content, the rents that they're paying, the still outsized but diminishing rents that they're paying to Disney, Disney then uses to funnel Hulu and Disney Plus, which kind of cut out the cable company, right? You're just using the cable company as a dumb pipe at that point. You just want a Wi-Fi, a broadband connection. Yeah, there's two parts of that equation, though. In the old model, there was the guaranteed revenue of affiliate fees coming from Charter and Comcast for ESPN, even for the 80% of consumers that never watch ESPN. So 100% of Charter and Comcast customers pay for ESPN. Truly less than a quarter use the product on a regular basis. And they're paying, that's the most expensive part of your cable package is, is ESPN, unless you pay extra for HBO. So there is that component to it. The, the other thing is, I mean, Disney should, I've heard you talk about this before, they should be in the catbird seat. They should be in the driver's seat. The problem for, for Disney is those guaranteed fees are going away and they've traded it out for a direct-to-consumer business, which is really a slog. It's expensive to get customers. It's expensive to keep customers. It's expensive to get them back after they churn out. And that's the new direct. They now have to go into a retail business where the cable business was a wholesale business. So that's mm -hmm. a completely different thing. What's fascinating, though, is that Bob Iger is the same guy who came out on stage and said, we're going to lose, we're going to lose $25 billion dollars building this direct-to-consumer business and now he's shying away from finishing the job instead of cutting their way to profitability which i understand is the temptation because it looks super easy what they should be doing is going back to what made them who they are today disney was not built on walt disney's back like we don't talk about mickey mouse anymore we talk about the Princesses, which is all acquired content. Pixar, Star Wars, Monday Night Football. But Pixar, Hi. Monday Night Football, uh, ES, you know, <laughs> ESPN, even ABC, these were all purchased products, right? Star Wars. Bob Iger didn't become successful by cutting and saving. He made these big, bold acquisitions and then turned them into massive universes, which then pay off at the parks. So instead of cutting back, imagine for a second if Disney leaned into what made them who they are today and they bought Roblox. Not instead of cutting, you added. You took your all this IP, including The Simpsons and all everything that they spent $75 billion for and put it into Roblox or Spotify. You know, it's amazing. I am in Central Virginia. You're in New York. We're doing this. We're having this conversation. The pandemic really changed things. For a while, there was a sugar high with the streamers because Disney Plus was, I think, initially the, the test drive was, what, $6.99 a month? Like, how could you not sign up? Yeah. Your kids are homeschooling. Right. They're going to give you all this stuff, the entire Star Wars library, followed by Mandalorian and everything else. But then they realize, whoops. You know, things things were catastrophic for Disney at the outset. No live sports. The theme parks are closed and everything. But they contorted and they were able to save the NBA season. They used ESPN Live World of Sports in Orlando. The stock, yep. I think, hit nominally an all-time high. And then reality kind of sunk in. Oh, boy. Uh, disruption is costly, and we're going to have to pay billions and billions in losses to kind of navigate this world from cable TV to streaming and packaging. So very often, the sickest people look really healthy the last time you see them. That's, that's a fascinating that's, way of putting it. And so they all went all in on streaming without understanding that the move from wholesale to retail was going to destroy them.
and then they wound up down the rabbit hole with Netflix. By the way, Disney caught and surpassed Netflix in total worldwide subscribers in less than three years. 90 days later, they fired their CEO. So the rules, they went all in on a game they did not understand. And then they wound up at the poker table chipless and they don't understand, they can't fathom what possibly happened to themselves. Meanwhile, they did it all to themselves. Now we're on the other side of that. And rather than reinvent the model for where we're going, they're trying to actually roll it all back and redo the last model in a new form. And it's, it's really not gonna work. The, the people that they rely on to get to their consumers have so much more leverage over them than they have themselves. And Charter being kind of like a case study, but like what happens when Disney has to renegotiate their deal with Amazon and Fire or Roku? I'm going to close you out with one final Disney metaphor to the extent that my family and I finally braved it and made that trip in the August sweltering, hot and humid you know, Orlando scene. I think it was 102 degrees. It was intolerable. I shared that metaphor of the most half-hearted water fountain in the world is at Walt Disney World. I told you about the $2.50 raw banana at Hollywood Studios, but surely you remember the carousel of progress, uh, which was magical for me and my dad when I was a kid. These animatronic guys starting off at the turn of the, you know. uh, This is Tom Edison. This is Thomas Thomas Edison. Edison. We got an icebox. This is Albert Einstein. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is. Is that still running? No, it's not. That's what it was, GE's carousel of progress. So I'm there describing it to my son. I was like, hey, kids, we got to go in this. Meanwhile, I'm thinking it's, it's really air conditioned, but there was no line. Nothing going on. So we go in there and yeah, they talk about the ice box and you can now iron your shirt. And we got a general electric fridge. They took out the GE mention of it. But what's so sad and to bring it back to Disney in the here and now is by the time it gets to the present, the most they could talk about is the self-timing kind of computerized oven cooking a turkey. It wasn't about streaming. You know, a few years ago, it was virtual reality. The kid playing, hey, dad, or the kid playing the bass guitar and everything. And this is the most kind of shop-worn ride in all of Disney. And it's called the Carousel of Progress. It's like right out of The Simpsons, which I believe Disney owns too right now. And to to take it back that a company that was always looking behind its back and innovating and buying Pixar and going into ABC and ESPN and buying all these 20th century Fox assets is kind of out of ideas right now and out of innovation and looking to milk cable customers and the $2.50 banana. I wanted to leave you with that metaphor for whatever it's worth. Well, and, and you look at that and then you look at the messy deal. You look at the battle Disney's having over getting college football and the US Open broadcast to their customers across charter systems and then look at the messy deal. Look at what Thursday night football is going to become this this year as a sh- as a shopping center for Amazon. And then look at what ESPN is doing, what Disney is doing with ESPN right now. It's 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 like watching two different species exist in the same ecosystem. And I just feel bad for this poor limping gazelle next to these major big tech lions that are clearly just going to eat them for lunch. Sounds like an it's Animal really, Kingdom ride too, right? My ride. It is. I mean, and 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 I the idea of Iger's thigh being chewed on by t- Tim Cook's, you know, uh, big mane is now stuck Ooh, in my head. Metaphors galore. Sir, you are a hoot. And I'm so grateful to you for coming on this show. Evan Shapiro, Media cartographer, LinkedIn, Supernova, Renegade of Funk. Uh, could you give us your, your social media handle to the extent you have any or your Substack link? Uh, Substack is uh, Eshap Media War and Peace. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm Evan Shapiro. Uh, I am on threads. If you want to be there, I am on TikTok, but I don't think. Let's stick to LinkedIn. Full disclosure, stay with us. You were listening to some of the recent episode, Wars of the Galaxies. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your podcasts. We continue with some of my recent deep dive with The Economist magazine's Alice Fullwood on China's economy. It's grappling with all sorts of challenges, from a property and banking bust to high youth unemployment and an aging population. Can Beijing plan its way out of this slide? Alice, I have a big cosmic question. One of the most successful emerging markets in history and certainly in recent history, and you've covered no shortage of it, is China. It has taken a record number of people out of poverty, has really parlayed itself from an agrarian economy, a backwater, a place of uh, you know intense central planning, even though it's still centrally planned, into uh, what's about to become the second most you know, the, the, maybe the most powerful economy on the planet in purchasing power terms or whatever it is sometime this century. But 
it is struggling in a way that it has not struggled in the modern kind of world trade organization period. Talk to me about that. Yeah, this is a sort of a great question. You know, as you've pointed out, uh, in, in 1978, when China sort of joined the global economy, uh, its economy was about a tenth the size of America's uh, and uh, it, its people... Um, uh, as you sort of 90% of them lived in in, in poverty uh, over the past sort of 50 or so years, its economy has expanded to be about about 75% uh, of the size of America's and uh, and now sort of average living standards in China are about about a fifth of, of the US. So uh, wow. so a, a hugely successful sort of 50 year period for the world now the world's second largest economy, but. In recent months, um, and and really over the past sort of few years, several things have started to go sort of quite badly wrong for China's uh, economic um, uh, economic outlook, and you know. Obviously, sort of, it, it was affected by COVID in the same way as everyone was. Um, it had very draconian zero COVID policies. And at the beginning of this year, when it finally liberated uh, the, the economy and its people from, from those policies, the perception was that there would be this huge boom in, in Chinese economic output, akin to what's happened in the rest of the Western world. You know, this revenge summer of spending and people going out um, and investing. Um, and, you know, there's been such a, a, a roar in, in Western economies um, post-COVID. People assumed China would be the same. Um, and that's not what's happened at all. Uh, instead, it was sort of very unprepared for, for new variants of the virus. It hadn't vaccinated enough people. So uh, those have really put a dampener on people going out and about. There have been huge issues in its property sector, um, which, you know, property is a huge part of the Chinese economy. Uh, they owe about 16% of GDP, of Chinese GDP's worth of debt. Various sort of large uh, property developers are struggling or defaulting on their debts. Um, and that's becoming a real issue for the economy. And the economy is sort of sharply slowing down. Uh, it only grew uh, at around sort of 4% in the last quarter, which is pretty remarkable when you consider that America is growing at closer to 6%, according to most prominent estimates. And while the rest of the world is sort of facing, you know, if anything, much too high inflation, uh, China actually is now facing deflation. So consumer prices... Well, Alice sees on this point, it's still growing. I mean, we're not talking about a recession, much less a hard landing yet. Maybe if you consider the rate of growth, it's clearly not growing at or near the double digits and what it miraculously got used to over the past 25 or 30 years. But I don't understand. It's it's growing, but not enough to keep this gigantic public-private machine going. I mean, what's what's the metaphor in your head? Because broadly, I don't know where the state stops and the private sector starts in earnest. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point uh, because a lot of China's problems seem to come from essentially sort of policy mistakes that the Chinese government is making. So the sort of the, the zero COVID mishap, not getting enough people vaccinated, that was a huge policy error. Um, they obviously have, um, you know, one of the reasons that China has been able to keep growing so quickly, uh, even as uh, it's, it's become wealthier, is because it's kept sort of loosening monetary policy, allowing private companies or, or as you say, sort of public-private uh, uh, partnership style companies to pile on more and more debt. Um, and it, it's, it's not really doing that this time around. It hasn't cut interest rates as much as some people expected. Um, and it's not sort of stepping in to sort of bail all of these sort of struggling property companies out of, of the predicament they find themselves in. So a lot of the reasons that China seems to be slowing down are either sort of policy mistakes or choices that the government is making. And I guess that gets to your point, which is that you know, so much of its economic trajectory depends on, on what the party wants and, and is trying to achieve. What is so particular about housing? and the, the property fetish in China. I know that it's not, clearly the stock market remains a backwater. There are certain distortions. There are share classes that foreigners and locals can buy. Uh, we're going to get into a broader stock market discussion, but it's a savings culture for people who do have disposable income. They're used to saving it at very little uh, interest rate, I think by government fiat or, or whatever that might be over there. But yet, and yet, Property is something that is underscored, and especially in sharp relief now that we're talking about the failure of major developers and property-intensive banks. What is it specifically about uh, the real estate dream and uh, the Chinese emerging middle class? Yeah, it's a good question because it's not uh, entirely clear sort of how um, how this this sort of status quo came to came to be um, in terms of sort of everyone thinking that that sort of real estate was the absolute sort of must have for uh, for their sort of own personal investments. But in general, some of the sort of ways that the property market in China is structured that um, that are causing some problems are that a lot of developers um, will build uh, will build 
buildings um, on sort of advanced uh, money. So whenever someone in China buys an apartment, they typically buy uh, an apartment uh, in a sort of future building. And then the developers use that that money to create, to build sort of whatever projects they're working on at the moment. So it's actually a lot of them are running into to trouble uh with the the sort of being able to deliver the apartments that they've promised to make, um, and a lot of the the sort of property that they have they have developed is is not necessarily sort of indesirable or or, or areas that are selling that particularly well, um, and so you have seen sort of a huge sort of creation of of you've seen a lot of creation of uh, apartments that um, that really are just sort of wasted uh, wasted capital expenditure from these companies. Um, how does that how does that buck or yuan stop? Explain that for me, because here in the United States, you have stress tests, you have uh, distressed properties, you have non-performing properties. It would recourse back to the bank. I don't understand if you kind of if you build it, they will come. Uh, I understand the construction jobs, the the cranes going up. You have that crazy stat that China coming out of the Great Recession consumed more concrete in three years than the United States did in a hundred years. I had Jim Chanos, the China skeptic hedge fund manager, deconstruct that for me in 2015. I still can't get my mind around that. I mean, if you think about the Hoover Dam and the interstate highway system, how is that even possible? And yet China does it. It builds ghost cities, high-speed rail, bridges to nowhere. But you have to have uh, an end customer. You have to have an end kind of result, whether it's a mortgage or, or cash flow coming back to the banks, unless you willingly, as the government, suspend disbelief. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, you're right about this. I mean, the the, the problem is um, that there that so much of investment, so much of the sort of share of uh, uh, GDP that is investment growth has been in property uh, in China. It's something like a third, which is which is far higher than it is um, sort of anywhere else um, uh, in the rest of the world. And so you've had sort of this huge capital investment in property uh, and construction in general. And the the problem is now that there just there basically is is not sort of sufficient demand from Chinese people to uh to to satisfy um uh that investment and 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 for it to be able to sort of keep growing which is one of the reasons why why growth is slowing down in terms of sort of how you can get into this um this situation uh, you know in in general when many of these investments are either explicitly or implicitly underwritten by uh, governments you can get this kind of uh, extreme malinvestment uh, that it's much harder to get um, in, in other parts of the world where that, that those sort of guarantees aren't uh, aren't in place. Now, I'm looking at the stock market performance if you want a kind of a barometer. And of course, there isn't full transparency and there are ADR issues and everything else. But iShares China large cap ETF has round tripped effectively back to where it was in 2006. And we know that China has grown enormously since 2006. The world has changed enormously since 2006. But to think a portfolio of Chinese blue chips, including Alibaba, Tencent, China Construction Bank, Baidu, NetEase, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, all of this has largely in aggregate been dead money. That's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, you know, and it's, it gets to another of the sort of potential policy mistakes that the Chinese government has made, which is the sort of huge crackdown on tech companies and tech uh, entrepreneurism uh, that they they sort of carried out uh, um, over the past few years. Um, that has really uh, helped sort of fuel some of the uh, the, the decline um, in in share prices there. Um, and it you know it gets again to these sort of these policy errors that that the Chinese government are making. Um, I do uh, I do sort of uh, point out again all the caveats that you have, which is that the stock market is a sort of a, a much smaller fraction or, or much less representative of the of the Chinese economy uh, than than the American one is. Uh, but I agree, it's sort of it's pretty remarkable how how far back uh, share prices have, have fallen in China. You were listening to some of the recent episode, The Great Stall of China. Catch the entire conversation wherever you listen to pods. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Follow on all social media and handle Full D Radio. And be on the lookout for huge live shows at the University of Richmond, including NPR's Steve Inskeep in October, MSNBC President Rashida Jones in November, and in December... Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Admission is free, but seats will get snapped up. Details soon at robins.richmond.edu.
If you are just joining us, welcome to Full Disclosure Rewind, featuring highlights from recent episodes. By popular demand, I put together a collage of interviews for my true crime book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. Here is some of my talk with Rick Morales Jr., who has been piecing together the tormented life of one of my book's main characters, notorious Miami triple agent Ricardo Monkey Morales. There's a fascinating anecdote that I know, uh, especially you and I got in touch after, you know, as my book was being published in 2017, I think we got in touch over Twitter, like, hey, why are you posting a photo of my father? I was like, wow, I found him now. Uh, it would have been useful to find you for the book, but we've struck up quite a conversation since and sharing notes about, you know, my 20-year fascination, 20-plus year fascination with your father's journey. I'm citing a famous feature story. It was uh, the cover story of Harper's Magazine uh, back in January 1982. Miami does business, drugs and terrorism in America's Casablanca. Uh, the main source for John Rothschild, who was the author, the late uh, Miami Beach-based author, your father helped him out with the story. And he shares this anecdote, which is just so irresistible. Let me read it. Uh, Morales, Ricardo Morales has been impressing Miami with high-voltage performances. And this is an anecdote that he shares. A man I know once made a surprise visit to Morales' apartment. He told Morales' girlfriend who answered the door that he wanted to have a friendly chat with Ricardo. He was invited to sit in the living room while Morales finished taking a shower. When Morales entered the room, he marched directly to the visitor's briefcase and opened it without asking permission. The visitor was too startled to object. Morales dredged up the tape recorder, which was already running. He removed the tape cassette and put it in his shirt pocket. He shook out the batteries and placed them at the opposite ends of the mantelpiece, like trophies. Then he returned the neutralized recorder to the briefcase. So far, Morales had not said a word. Then Morales pulled out his revolver and laid it on the coffee table. He had disarmed his visitor, and now he's offering up his own concealed weapon for the visitor's inspection. My friend lacked the wit to empty the gun and place the bullets on the mantelpiece next to the batteries. Morales got out a couple of glasses from a cabinet and poured some Chivas Regal. His mood had shifted from menacing to jovial. Now, he said, we can talk. That's the Morales style. Rick Jr., I'm sure you've been regaled with stories like this for, what, four or five decades? Yeah, I've, been, I've, heard, I've heard that story a couple of times. I've read it. Um, but it gives you a pretty good synopsis of who my father was in that he uh, would make sure you knew he was in charge, make sure you had a, some fear in you, what was going on around him, he knew. And then let you know that now that we're square, you're a good guy, I'm a good guy, let's do things. Because he just wanted you to know that he was, he could do things, but he didn't want you to be for the rest of your life. It's not like it's going to haunt you. What was your first memory of your father here in the United States? My first memory of my father in the United States is uh, there's, there's a lot of little ones. Um, him being in the house and us being in bed watching TV. There's fishing trips down to Key Biscayne where we would go fishing and he would talk to us on the way down and, you know, try to try to explain himself to us a little bit. When we were younger, those conversations didn't make any sense. But uh, those are the early memories that I still have. And at what age do you faintly recall, I guess, your father disappearing for weeks and months on, on end? As we discuss, in the 1960s, his first decade in the United States, he was a notorious freelancer. He would take contract hit jobs and uh, bomb people's boats and scuba dive through the marina just to scare them. Um, you know, th the, there were the bookie wars going on in Miami Beach and the Jewish and Italian mobs were blowing things up. And the Cubans who were here, who had been waiting for a rematch to take out Fidel Castro, didn't quite get it. So they went out and kind of offered their services freelance as your father did. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I think the memories are few and far between is that he was really never around. I didn't know it when I was a child. I figured everything was the same way everywhere that fathers went away and did things. But yeah, I remember the first time, I couldn't tell you, I must have been young, 10, I can't remember, we can probably figure out the age, was when he was coming out of a courtroom, there's video of that, from a trial, the TikToks trial, and I saw him on TV, and that's when I knew things were bigger than just a, a normal father. Hmm. You know, I, I just can't believe it if you go back and they're 
things that are being declassified piece by piece by piece by the CIA. I mean, uh, links to the JFK assassination, all the shady things that happened in Miami in the 1960s. Tell us about your journey to understand your father. I mean, there's so many crumbs that he left since his death at the end of 1982. Informant records, letters that he wrote people. It seemed like he knew he was not going to be long for this world, and it would take family and friends and journalists and everybody to kind of fully unwrap the story. It would take decades and a lot of cooperation from a government that has not always been cooperative. Yeah, very true. Um, and we've been working on getting those uh, CIA files declassified, but that is a struggle in itself. Uh, I remember my dad, I did some research on him once I started getting into the 15, 16 year old range and, uh, and I started learning about stuff and then the airliner incident where the airplane blows up. And that's when I started figuring it out. But he would take us shooting out into the Everglades and he would take us uh, on little trips here and there and he would tell us about stuff. And he would let us in on some of the stuff, you know, even now after his death, they won't declassify most of the information. So I am uh, taking a letter from 1968 that was written by the rebel army in exile. This is a group of uh, anti-Castro activists in Miami, of which there were many that your father was a part of. I want to read the letter from uh, the director of the rebel army in exile, distinguished army countrymen. The rebel army in exile wants to make known through this newspaper its energetic protest for the detention arrest of the tireless fighter for the cause of democracy, Ricardo Morales Navarrete, who has been accused of placing bombs in establishments catering to the delivery of clothing and medicine to Cuba. We want to make it clear we do not support terrorist acts that put innocent lives in danger. That is why the young Navarrete is innocent of the accusations and we feel his arrest and his bonds set at $25,000 is unjust. The bond cannot be obtained by his family since the economic situation of Morales and his family is like that of the majority of the Cuban exiles in this country, that they have to work in order to support their families. That is why we ask the authorities in this case, as each day goes by, is unfair to Ricardo Morales Navarrete. His children and his wife suffer more hardship because they depend on him for substance, which is sick. It should be subsistence. Also, for the general public that is unfamiliar with the young Morales, we show a picture of the young Morales when he was fighting communism in the Congo. What he has done for Cuban freedom, there is no need to speak. And those that have not turned their backs on the Cuban tragedy know him. Do you remember this incident when your father was arrested in 1968? How old were you? Yeah. What's, what year is it again? 1968. 68. I'm five years old. I do not. I remember he was not around. So, But I remember because my whole family was involved also, because my uncle, Hector Cornelot, was also with my father, the ones that were placing bombs. There was factions that were placing bombs, and there were competing factions that were placing bombs. And some of them were pro-Castro, and some of them were anti-Castro. So my dad was trying to get involved in that for the FBI to try to figure out who's doing what for what reason. So who's doing it pro-Castro-wise, who's doing it anti-Castro-wise. So he was trying to provide all the information at those times to the officers. That's why he would plant bombs that didn't work on some targets because he knew they weren't pro-Castro, they were anti-Castro. So some of the devices would go sure, off. Sure. That was part of the games that he played. Now, did you ever ask your mother or your father point blank, like, what do you do? What does daddy do? Why is daddy gone? Why did you just understand that daddy was gone all the time? Yeah, no, that, that, uh, by the time we would hang out with him, we knew what daddy did. I never had to ask because not only it was on the news quite a bit back then, you would see stories on the news and you would read the newspapers and everybody told you, yeah, your dad's the one that's out blowing things up or your dad's this or your dad's that. And they didn't know. So we had to take and as children, you believe a lot of the things they talk about your dad and then. So I grew up believing he was uh, some kind of drug dealer for a lot of years. And then the political stuff started coming out. And that's when I got wise. How could you just grow up believing that your dad's a drug dealer? Like your mom wouldn't disabuse you of this, your older brother. Uh, what are other people saying? I mean, people in Havana, Little Havana, they talk. People in Coral Gables in South Miami. Your father is quite an infamous figure. Those people don't know the underlying reasons of why things happen. Like, for example, how does... Uh, CIA asset become the second in charge of Venezuela's DCEP department. They're basically their CIA. Never having lived in Venezuela, not having been born in Venezuela, 
Why is he the second in command of Venezuela's secret police? Who posted him there? That's a CIA posting. So he was there working for the CIA. You were listening to some of the recent episode Hotel Scarface on Full Disclosure. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your pods. Finally, we took another chance recently and delved into a frank self-appraisal of where this show has been and where it needs to go. My producers, Claire Morgan and Case Graham, want me to up my multimedia game. Fair enough. Exciting shows ahead. Take in some of this introspection on this Full Disclosure's ninth year on the air. Joining us from various parts of Richmond, Glen Allen, Henrico, Central Virginia are my co-producers, Claire Morgan and Case Graham of Notterly. They are both independent musicians, bookers. They've been bartenders, drink slingers, event promoters. I am lucky to have them. And we're doing this. Look, it could be really indulgent to talk about ourselves after nine years as full disclosure, but the show is about to evolve, and I hope that it doesn't come across as indulgent and that it's more vulnerable. And we're opening up our books to you and opening our souls. Welcome, Claire and Case. How are you? Doing well. Good, thanks. How are you? We just had a series of meetings and a breakfast ahead of these various live shows that we're going to be doing starting this fall back at the University of Richmond, coming back bigly after COVID. It starts with Sonny Boesia. Then we have Steve Inskeep of NPR, Rashida Jones of MSNBC. A huge show in December with Mayor Pete, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, at Maudlin, and many big shows that we're planning in the spring, some rock acts. I mean, I'm not allowed to blow the cover on them yet, but we thought this was a great time to discuss morphing the show straight up from kind of radio and podcast into something more multimedia bells and whistles. Now, we are of different generations. As you see, I'm a a stale Gen X old man, and you are very much kind of heavily tattooed millennials. (laughs) And uh, you are tastemakers, if you will. And you came to me and said, Mr., we got to catch up with the times. You're not on YouTube. You're not getting the kind of outreach that you might want to get on Instagram or Friendster or MySpace or whatever it is you guys are on. So am I right in this self-assessment? I think it's less that and more, let's have more fun and let's figure out a more complete way to tell your story and the stories of the people that you speak to, you know. But why, Claire Morgan? I have a face for radio. You do Um, not. By way way of background, you were the first person you helped me at the end of 2013 pilot this show. And we reconnected. You know, I went off and did it for a low-power radio station, WRIR, initially. And we connected during the pandemic, I remember, where recording techniques changed. We weren't booking people at NPR studios. We had to learn on the fly. But there was also a real blossoming of the podcast world in that kind of content boom of the pandemic. And coming out of that, I got to meet Case. And you know the body of work, Case, and the the various other things that we could have done. You've both been, I think you've been to the Nada Surf Show, which I look back at fondly at the National in autumn of 2019, where things were really picking up back then. Silver Sun pickups came on afterwards. I had a concert concept. I had a comedy concept. And then the world just shut down because of the pandemic. So here we are, trying to pick up the pieces from it in the wake of everything that happened and remote work and work from home. And frankly, all the technology that has changed. I mean, so many guests now have podcasting mics. So many of them know how to use Riverside or Zencaster, the various things. So you want to be able to tap the kind of the multimedia bells and whistles. We know that cable TV is declining. Traditional media is declining. There are cord cutters everywhere. But people are going to news sources directly over YouTube, over Snap, over Insta. Talk to me about that case. I definitely think that people are choosing to get their news from platforms like Instagram, you know, you can go online and you can follow your news outlet and that's where you get your news or your individual correspondent that you just like the way that they put out the information. It makes sense to you. So definitely just wanting to make you more accessible because you have a lot to say and a lot that people want to hear. And I think that that is what we wanted to do is kind of just revamp. Nine years is a long time. Yes, we need a a good spring cleaning and revamping. You know, if I say there's a metaphor, we are kind of at a Piedmont right now. We are at base camp looking up at 
Something that's about to happen with the University of Richmond. We've experimented, Claire and Case. You guys were there for our first big live show in a long time in Charlottesville with Margaret Brennan and Face the Nation back in May. And you wanted to get some B-roll and some other footage and some sense of place. And after that, you really had a hankering to meet and say, look, we should be doing more with these because we have people who are willing to come out with us. They get the welcome from the university, the pride of place from the university, where necessary, where it can work. Students will help us cope produce. We sell books. We have food. There's a real great, unique concept in that I'm giving the guest an NPR episode. You're offering them a high def, you know, documentary, HD documentary, and they're getting the live show and the the reception from the university. And so it's really unique. And especially if I go back, Claire, if you think back to the Not A Surf episode, Silver Sun Pickups, David Lowry at Rainmaker, where we, we have the footage mm-hmm. and you guys can get it from Lucas Cross. All that stuff was amazing as proof of concept before the pandemic. Like you could get into the entrepreneurial story with a band or a singer, and then there could be a set afterwards or do the same with a chef like we did with Chef Peter Chang or Brittany Anderson. And there's a meal afterwards, or we want to do it with comedians. We've pitched Pete Yorn. We're talking to the Scandinavian band, The Hives. In New York, this this dog can hunt. So that's my, I mean, as long-winded way of saying, I'm excited, but I also have some trepidation technologically because as you guys know, I understand the cardioid mic. I understand roughly in a pinch, if a guest doesn't have anything, they can do an iPhone voice record. But our listeners out there want so much more. For example, YouTube is booming, and I am not on YouTube at all, maybe save for my I TV appearances. I can't believe that. <laughs> but tell me how this is going to – YouTube as a podcasting channel, as a video yeah. podcasting channel, tell me how that's going to work. Yeah, I think this whole project of revamping the podcast is really a, just a selfish thing for me because I'm trying to binge Robin. and. And the only way I can bend you is if we just make a bunch of videos and get them on YouTube regularly and have some different conversations in different spots around town, around the country, and just kind of experiment with what sort of fun we can have and what we can create. I'm really interested in creating content that, again, like is speaking to you as a person in addition to what you bring. And let me tell you guys what the insecurity was that in the to the extent that we're talking about full disclosure right here. You know, you're always taught, I remember meeting with an NPR editor back in 2011, maybe it was in Manhattan when I had this dream of going off and starting a public radio show. He's a great veteran of NPR. He's now at CBS this morning and he had this dog-eared thing. I said, "Listen, I had this dream of going off and starting an NPR show." And he took this thing out of his wallet from when he was on NPR and he's like, "These are the things that a good NPR host does. A good person you're always Look, it's not about you at all. It's about your listener. And this has been something that's been great about NPR, but it's also been a limitation that you've seen a lot of people leave for the podcasting world. You see Sam Sanders and others say that, or Lulu Garcia Navarro, it was such a straitjacket and the podcasting division is different from broadcast and news and opinion seeping into it. And so I have been trained, especially as a you know investigative reporter, it's not about you. Keep yourself out of it. And yet many of my guests... People who get in touch say that I value you for your curation. It is about you. You're telling me who I should listen to this week. If I find, for example, a couple months ago was a former editor of Money Magazine who's now a a high school teacher for at-risk youth, that's my curation. I sought that out. I mean, nobody told me I had to have him on, but I had a different angle on that. I mean, why did I seek out Not A Surf? Why did I go and meet with the band's agent? in Bryant Park in New York said, listen, you guys are a business story. Because if you think about you know, the backstory of how, if you listen to that episode, they had the audacity to approach the late Rick Ocasek of the Cars with a mixtape. And then they got dumped by their record label. And it was actually a business story. And when they turned around, I was like, oh, I get it. It's a business story. Or Maz Jabrani, the comedian, when I told him, he's like, I, I appreciate you wanting to have me on. We're Iranians. But how am I a business story? I was like, well, You've been on Showtime and HBO and Comedy Central and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and all these things as a comedian, but I understand you're crowdfunding your original screenplay. Why is it that you know, you're know you golden in one respect, you're hitchhiking kind of in another? And he's like, oh, I get it. And I think that's my moment when guests, prospective guests say, oh, I see. You're kind of coming in through this corridor and no one else has interviewed me about that. So case, I mean, speak to that because again, it's this matrix of indulgent versus transparent and looking out and curating for my listeners. 
Right. I think that we talked about transparency a lot in our conversation when we had breakfast at the diner. It's what everybody wants from a news investigative reporter. It's a no-brainer that we go ahead and take the show in that direction. Now with all these platforms that are out, all these toys we have, all this technology we have, we have the capabilities now to take the podcast in more of that direction. Yeah, that gives me good entree. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to our special Transparently Indulgent self-analysis introspection episode. We're kind of nine years into this, and at the foot of a mountain where a big series of live shows are going to happen, we could call the working internal title for that is Fullest Disclosure. Fullest Disclosure is when you have the live, the big honking live show, obviously with the hour-long plus podcast, which goes over for musical performances and other things, and the documentary, which you guys are shooting, that, that kind of combo meal that, that makes me happy that I've been dreaming of. And we're getting closer to that. Um, we mentioned the possibility, and Claire, you helped pilot this. Fuller Disclosure is the working title. We had Kevin Griffin of Better Than Ezra on several months ago. And this is a person with a studio in Tennessee and decent microphone and uh, video assets. And he's able to do this kind of thing with us on Riverside, where you're able to see the true heart of the conversation and the performance. I would say there's full disclosure, which is just the, the really the straight-up podcast and radio show, weekly radio show, 52 minutes, or we run long if we have extra stuff. And Claire, your son came up with the idea, because you explained the technology to me, of working title Half Disclosure, uh, a walking type video thing with a person I find interesting. You guys taught me, I think these these Shure mics that I didn't even know they existed. They look like little garage door openers on your lapel and they capture audio and you can be filming me with a fascinating person that I might just want to talk to and film walking. I know it sounds uh, local news-like, but I love doing that kind of stuff and there are people that would totally be game. And to Case's point, this would give us an inventory of content. I really want you to see the Not A Surf footage where Lucas really went nuts with a camera crew. I mean, he yeah. followed them from the airport to the hotel where they were jamming in the hotel room. So cool. You know, in my mind's eye, if I'm interviewing, let's say, Pete Buttigieg in December, right? That's going to be a big show. I want to go back to his college experience. I want to come and go out to him coming out, what that was like. I want right. to go back to Harvard. I want to go back to running for president. And I want that archival footage kind of spliced into it. As you guys know, one of the uh, inspirations has been inside the actor's studio, where you can kind of do that, where you can go from my candid conversation with a person on stage, you see the audience reactions, and you go back to photography or candid stuff. Or same with Sonny Boija, who'll be talking about coming to the United States, who'll be talking about setting up things, bootstrapping it. Steve Inskeep on this Lincoln book, and when I turn it around about his career, I mean, you could imagine that with Margaret Brennan. When we were talking to her in May, I think she was surprised that I said, let me start this conversation with Charlottesville because you're a graduate of UVA. Right. You can imagine us in post-production saying, okay, splice to the picture of her at graduation in her cap and gown, splice to a picture of her with Louis Rukeyser, you know, fresh out of this in the early aughts. That's the kind of the vision we have for something like this, eminently consumable over YouTube or Vimeo or Insta or whatever it is. Absolutely. I could hear this taking place in a kitchen where... A chef is explaining what he's doing. You have the entire conversation, like a walk and talk. You know, they show you their kitchen or they show you whatever they want. And then we can slice that together with, you know, pictures of when they first started cooking. What inspired them to start cooking? Was it a family member? Was it a friend? Was it a mentor? Did they see a TV show that they just like got obsessed with? It's endless. And so I would love to be able to show that side. So I think that's an exciting thing for us to be able to do. As you guys know, from a self-awareness perspective, I try really hard to not seem indulgent. When I do fanboy about something, I'm, I'm, I joke about it fanboying. For example, last year, I had my brother on right. last summer, and I said, my brother, my mentor. And I thought, you know what? It's a late summer thing. I can explain to people that I'm going out on a limb doing it. And I was blown away, and we're going to have him on to close this episode again. I was blown away to the extent that people liked it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't immediately reflexively looked at as like, dude, you're just having your executive brother on. You know, there are times when I'm sitting with him in Miami, we're at Flanagan's or we're having a bite together, and it's so amazing to me because he's my, he's my baby brother. You know, he's six years younger than me. I remember coming home from kindergarten and kissing his kiwi head, and it was one of the best memories that I ever had. And now here I am in middle age, 
turning around. Like the tables have really turned and I'm asking him advice. And there are times when I wish there was a candid camera thing in the bar or the restaurant. It's like, if, if the listener could just see my insecurities, could get a window into my insecurities and the things that he's tapping into. You know, he sat me down after that show in Charlottesville. Mm. The morning after we had breakfast in a coffee house right across the street from the hotel. And he said, listen, I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to give you tough love. I know this is your first live show. I know you recently had some health problems. And what's up with the wrinkle-free shirt? You know, what's up with the belt buckle? What's up with, like, uh, you know, this? He he chewed this out, this conceit, which has been a running joke on Room Raider, that this is what I have set up. Like, I didn't put any thought into a step and repeat. And this is a very 1992 look. And Room Raider on Twitter jokes with me that, you know, I have the mutiny license plate, the full disclosure, <laughs> oh, Venetian. I don't even know what those are called. But he's like, you know what? At least get a good backdrop going on or do something respectable. And that's a person who really pays attention to form and substance. When they pitch a company, they do an incredible, like 150-page, super glossy. They don't half-bake anything. He says, the pixels should connect on your logo, on your email. All these things, you shouldn't have a Google Voice box. You know, you shouldn't have a Gmail on anything. All these things telegraph to the world that you're serious and you pay attention to detail. Right. What do you guys think about that? Growing up, my dad used to really impress upon me dress for success, dress for the job that you want. I have a lot of respect for the fact that you talk so highly of your brother and you have so much respect for your brother. That's what makes this interesting. You know, your listenership loves you. And so they're not going to be annoyed or frustrated that you're interviewing your brother. They're going to be stoked about it. I'm stoked about it. I can't wait to listen to the last 20 of this uh, podcast. I'm not sure about the first half. Uh, <laughs> you were listening to some of the recent episode Reimagining This Show. Catch the entire conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Full disclosure, special thanks to Notterly and the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. Again, if you are catching us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast length, the entirety of every interview runs on podcast. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our listeners on NPR member station Radio IQ across the Commonwealth. Message me if you would like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.